Welcome to We Are All Americans, conversations about how family stories are passed down from generation to generation and what it means to be American in the context of multiculturalism, immigration, military service, Black Lives Matter, white privilege, and indigeneity. I'm your host, Michelle Jacquis, and I'm here with Claudia Hernandez-Romero. We're sitting in one of the uh, recording studios at Otis College of Art and Design in Los Angeles. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you, Michelle. So let's start by tell me a little bit about your family and where your people are from and how they arrived to the U.S. So I am Salvadoran. I'm born in El Salvador and uh, my whole family on my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family are from El Salvador. Um, I was raised primarily by my mother's side of the family. I do know my father's side of the family um, and I, I still have contact with my brother who mm. is still in El Salvador and mm. who I hope to see uh, June 2020. Ooh. It's been a long time. How long? 20 years. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. Last time I saw him was right before I entered grad school. Then I had Benny. Mm-hmm. Then you saw it. So, like, you know, funding, money, all yeah. had to go to raising the little one. Yeah. Then I started working here and got really busy teaching and career focus. And yeah. But, you know, it's been calling me to go back, like, the fact that I have my brother there and we keep in contact yeah. via uh, WhatsApp. If you're Latino, you you know what's up with WhatsApp. I, I use it too because <laughs> my sister lives in India. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like international folk are all about WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. Um, so we keep in contact. And, and so the fact that he's in El Salvador, that calls to me to mm-hmm. return. Mm-hmm. And there's always this nagging like, oh, I got to go back. I gotta go see my brother, you know. Yeah. But also, like now he has three kids, like so it's not one, but two, but you know three. Uh, and on top of that, uh, there's there's times in my life where like I'll be, I'll be walking down the street, and um, I get smells that just stop me dead in my tracks, and I am taken to a moment in my childhood in El Salvador, like uh-huh. a smell where it's like a fruit mm-hmm. or like street vending experience or something that just transports me to like this far away place. How many generations do you know lived there? How far back did of you, my people? Do you know of my family? Your family, yeah. Oh, um, well, uh, I think I think most of us are just Salvadoran, Mm. like born in, most of us I think are born and raised there. Like I know that my mom's mother was born there. Her father is a Maya uh, man. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her mother was of Italian heritage, but I think she was also born in El Salvador. So Mm -hmm. I think her grandparents may have been migrants from Europe Mm. on her mom's side and on her father's side indigenous Maya Pipil Mm -hmm. which I didn't know this about my my grandmother until I was grown and really I think I must have been like 40 when she first said any of this to me Uh, this and, and there's I think she hasn't explained why she didn't talk much about this, mm. um, but I sort of put things together um, based on my understanding of like indigenous experiences in El Salvador mm-hmm. um, and my family's experience uh, and and my grandma's personal experience. So I kind of I sort of create you know, the connections. Yeah. <laughs> I'm my own twenty three in me. Let's see. And then my mom's father, he is also born in El Salvador. Um, and I believe it was his parents that came from Andalusia, Spain. Mm-hmm. So that's my that's my heritage. Yeah. Um, and then my, my father's side of the family, um, I know that they're of indigenous heritage on uh, his family father's side um indigenous and spanish and then on his mother's side um indigenous 
and I guess uh, her father was either Turkish or Jewish. All I know is they talk about era turco, era turco. He mm. was a Turk, and I don't know exactly mm. what that means. I don't know if it really means oh he was Turkish or if that's like saying is Chino, you know, like the racist race. Right, like <laughs> somewhere from the Middle yeah, East. So, exactly, oh, you wow. know, like, um, I admit there there's some racist underpinnings in the Latin culture, and mm. that has not, um, that has been true of my family, too. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, you know. How, so you came as a child to yes. the U.S.? Yeah. You so tell that story? Yes, um, so I, I came when I was about seven years old, and... Um, I always feel like my story begins before we came because, um, you know, I was growing up in this extended family system. We moved back and forth between, um, my, my paternal, paternal grandparents' home Mm -hmm. and my maternal grandparents' home. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we just moved back and forth between those homes with my, with my mom and my father. And, uh, we happened to be living in my paternal home when uh, my father died Mm -hmm. Um, and that's really what prompted my mom to make the move because uh, by the time when my father died we were in the middle of war and things Mm -hmm. were really bad Um, and she found herself alone because by that time the her her siblings had her male siblings she's got five brothers um, five brothers and two sisters and four of the brothers had been sent here Uh, like the family had just pulled their funds together and um, it had gotten so dangerous people were disappearing especially college age college Mm -hmm. and high school aged um, students and and males in particular they had become you know so many people were losing family members and so my grandmother was like oh no this can't happen to my kids and so she was this like early early 80s yeah early 80s and so my grandmother and just the whole family sort of put money together and started shipping out the boys one by one. Um, and they all have their own stories, uh, which I, are a mystery to me and my uh, my siblings and cousins. We, we've heard snippets of it. We know bad things happened to them mm-hmm. on their mm-hmm. journeys, but we don't know exactly why because they won't talk about it. And, uh, you know, my my youngest uncle who was like, 12 years old when I was born. He was sort of like my big brother, and I remember um, he used to brush my hair and stuff, and he was one of the last ones to be sent out here mm-hmm. um, with one of my aunties. And uh, uh, he had such a bad experience that, like, even to this day, he cannot talk about it because it's like reliving it. It's very emotional. His wife has said, Oh, I think last summer I said to him, "Yeah, I'd love to. I would love to talk to you about that. I know um, you've been hesitant to say much about it, but I would, I would want to hear your story if, if you would be willing." Mm-hmm. And um, his wife was like, "If and when you do that, I cannot be around. I need to go away for the weekend because it gets bad. He gets bad, and it's just not a bad thing. I don't want to be around wow. for that." So, so yeah, um, so they, so, so to me, that story begins because before I made the trek with my siblings and my mom, before, um, you know, my, my, my immediate family's Mm -hmm. tragedy, my, my father's death, um, you know, caused us to have to make that, that journey. Um, I was all, my life was already shifting radically because I had to let go of my uncles who were um, like brothers to me like <laughs> you, you know like mm-hmm. I remember my uncle Caesar used to take me to school with him and I I, I feel like I was you know his tool for getting the girls because I remember <laughs> these pretty women saying oh my god how cute you know you like in Spanish yeah Your re- so sweet. yeah I, I really seriously remember being like maybe three years old or so and people like uh, you know being over me and like oh hi you know <laughs> such a good tío <laughs> yeah such a good tío exactly <laughs> um and 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 then you know my uncle my other uncle David you know uh who was 12 like he and I used to just climb climb the mango trees like well 
I didn't really do the climbing. He would pretty much prop me up on the branch, tell me to hold on, and then he'd climb. And, you know, we'd uh-huh. pull mangoes or, like, he'd swing me in this tire swing that they had built in my grandmother's home. And, you know, he was kind of he was kind of like my little roll dog. He'd brush my hair and give me, like, one ponytail higher than the other and walk me to school. And, like, I thought I was so cool because I had this, you know, the big kid that would walk yeah. me. And, um, you know, so... My, that that started to change. Like um, I had to say goodbye to people I loved, um, and I I would write them letters mm. without any sense of am I gonna see them again? Like I don't even remember whether I whether I knew if I'd ever see them again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then my dad when my dad died, uh, my mom was. You know, it was me and my two siblings. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them's four years younger, and the other one's five years younger. So they, so I was seven. Mm-hmm. One was three. The other one was two. Um, and my mom was was a widower. She had been um, a stay at home mom, and she had had nannies. And my father um, had been a, 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 you know, a man that had. Um, status. Um, he he was well educated. He came from a middle class family that was well educated. Um, his father was a lawyer, and um, you know his his uncles were lawyers, and my grandmother was like an executive secretary. And um, you know, suddenly my mom just felt so alone. She didn't have any of her family mm-hmm. left in El Salvador. Everybody had come. Her sisters had come because they got pregnant and were expecting children and were like oh hell no this is war and it's not a good time especially for boys and they found out they were pregnant with boys Uh. so they fled pregnant crossed the border pregnant so did your how did your father die um my father used he was an agricultural uh engineer um and so he would be out in the fields a lot in the countryside Mm -hmm. um and uh, our understanding is that sometimes the guerrillas would kidnap him mm. um, to to force him to clean up wounds and stitch people up and things like that. Um, and I think also the military would was known to harass people out in the fields, like making sure that they were not part of the guerrilla uh, mm-hmm. army. Um, so, so he was kind of getting harassment from both sides and there's, there's two different stories Mm -hmm. that accompany my father's death. One of them is, um, he had an accident, accident. It was plain and simple, a car accident. He was driving, uh, and he drove off the road, uh, off a cliff type road and hit a tree and it was a a fatal accident. You know, Mm -hmm. the he hit his head against the steering wheel uh the windshield cracked he, his body was too big uh, to be able to be moved safely and easily he had a fractured fractured skull um and he took his last breaths in, in this in the small town where he worked in the car uh they they helped bring him out mm-hmm. um and fortunately it was in well i don't know fortunately unfortunately but um, it just so happens that it was in the town where one of our na- my nannies that mm. used to take care of me and my sisters mm-hmm. that that was her town where she lived and she happened to be in the in the town at the time that this happened. So she was there with him. Her family was there with him, and they could be there f- mm-hmm. for his last breath. So he wasn't by himself. Yeah, her, her whole built town was there. Um, What's the other story? The other story is that um, uh, that he got roughed up either by the military or the guerrillas and uh, he was shook up and nervous as he was driving. He may or may not have had his glasses, which he definitely needed for driving, mm-hmm. and uh, that was cause for the accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that he, that he was fleeing, uh, that it was a dangerous situation. Um, what I remember personally was being a little kid, and there would be times when my dad would not make it back home, mm-hmm. um, and and so like we knew this, and that was always a time of like stress for my grandmother and anxiety, 
from my grandmother because she worried about her son. Of course. Um, and uh, but this time seemed like different. This time seemed. I remember like she brought us into her room where she had this ginormous portrait of Jesus Christ, uh, you know, with like thorns on his forehead and the the holy heart and and this was in her room and like mm -hmm. she she was really like stressed and was praying and she got us all me and all the other kids of the family my brother who's four years older than me so we we she was like oh, come on we have to pray and like she brought us all in she was a faithful catholic at the time a jew converted to catholicism mm. <laughs> later to become <laughs> an evangelical and later to become a mormon wow. uh, died as a mormon um so, yeah, so she had us in front of Jesus, and we were praying, and I remember thinking that this was, um, that this was unusual, not, uh, yeah, like, she, she didn't do this all the time, mm -hmm. and, and I, and I was like, what's going on? Like, why is she making us pray? Yeah. What's, what's the big deal? What happened? Yeah, and I kept on feeling like, what's going on? And it was this prayer for my dad, blessings for my dad. I, I don't know because she passed away before I could ever ask her, but mm. I don't know if she had a presentiment of some sort, um, or, or if, uh, there had been some kind of news or some awareness or s something to do with the war at the time that gave her extra anxiety about him not coming home mm -hmm. that particular weekend. Um, and then when the news came the next day, the very next day, I remember it was nighttime. The nannies were huddled around the TV. My mom and my grandmother were all, they were all like doing adult things huddled around the TV. Everything was fine. And uh, my brother and I were playing. The The babies were sleeping and then we heard a knock at the door we didn't have our own telephone it's which is weird you know like we were a middle-class family mm -hmm. in a middle-class neighborhood but we didn't have our own phone line mm -hmm. uh the folks next door to us had a phone line they were doctors um so they would take calls for us and just like mm -hmm. come and tell us so we got a knock it was the neighbors and they said uh that there was a phone call about my father and i could tell it was bad already because my mom um was like suddenly like there was a worry and a sigh and um, my grandmother started wailing mm -hmm. like we didn't mm -hmm. have the words yet but my grandmother was wailing and I was like what is going on and it was horrid and it was just shocking and, and then my mom came back and her face was red her nose was so red and she was sobbing and um, nobody told me Nobody told us that something had happened to my dad. Nobody told us that he had died. And I actually should ask my brother, did somebody tell you? Because mm -hmm. I, I don't remember ever being told your father is dead. I just assumed this based on everybody. And based then, on their reactions. Yeah, and then I just knew. And I remember on the day that they were doing the, the burial ceremonies and all of that, we just got sent to my uncle's house to be with his wife while everybody... Oh, so you all, as kids, didn't even go to no, the funeral? No, no. I've later asked my mom, and so she said, I just didn't want you to remember him that way. I didn't want you to think of him that way. Mm. Um, Which I think yeah. is really... I've, I don't know how I feel about I that. I find that my mom... You and I are like the yeah. same age, and and I and I never went to funerals. Yeah. And I the first one I went to was when I was in college, and a friend of mine had been stabbed to death. Mm. And I remember thinking like, my gr dad's parents had died. Um, my great grandmother that I had met had died. Like, why? Why is this the first funeral I'd ever gone to? And my mom, my, we've now taken my son to now three funerals and he's not quite five yeah and my mom has always said oh I wish I could be I wish I lived closer so that I could take Milo so you and Jeremy could go to the funeral and I've been like no I think he shouldn't be sheltered from this yeah he should understand this is part of life this is uh, I don't mind him yeah. go bringing him to this and but I, I, I think that it's interesting. I don't know if that's a generational thing or what, but, yeah, I was totally sheltered from that stuff yeah. as a kid and and now feel like it was weird. 
why yeah. did they and but my mom said the same thing like we wanted you to and we in Jewish families we don't do open casket mm-hmm. so with the idea that you remember them when they were alive not not, not dead what they look like in the I mean you do the immediate family has to at the funeral home identify the body and Mm -hmm. it's it can be one or a few people whoever agrees so somebody has to confirm yes this is the right body that you're about to bury (laughs) yeah but it's not open for the rest of the people coming to the funeral yeah I I yeah it's a strange thing that I don't know why I I my mom also didn't take us to things like that yeah I don't I don't know how I I don't know how I feel about it, and sometimes I wonder if that has shaped how I feel about death. Probably. You know, yeah, yeah right? Probably. I mean, I know that I created my own story. I knew he was dead, mm-hmm. um, and, and when my sister Heidi was like, what are we doing here? Where's dad? When are we going to see him again? And I was like, come here. I was like, let me show you something, and I knew that there was an obituaries page. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember how I knew this, Wow. but I looked... I looked at the newspaper. I pulled up the newspaper. I went straight to the obituaries page. I remember looking at this black and white image of my father with his curly head of hair and his thick glasses. It's it's a picture that I... It's like we still have that picture. Yeah. It's like almost like a passport picture, you know. And, and I remember uh, looking at that picture and, and reading to her the obituary, and she was like, does that mean you know she's a she little younger than you yeah she's the four the one that was four years younger than me yeah. so she was like three years old she was like what, what you know what does that mean you know and yeah. she's like laughing because she didn't know and I was like you know what this means it means we are not gonna see him again dead means he's he's somewhere else like we're never gonna see him again and she was like what does that mean and so then yeah. I said well you know, I, I don't know if I made this up. I can't. I don't know if I made this up then or if I had had a dream mm. that I shared with her. But I said to her, when you go outside, when you're outside and you look up and if you see a hawk, that hawk is our dad now. He's flying up in the sky now. Um, and wherever you see him, that wherever you see that hawk, you know that that's our dad being with us. And I remember mm. telling her that. And, and so, like, I don't know if it was a dream or mm-hmm. I don't know if I made it up because my dad had a hawk friend, like a real hawk, because mm-hmm. he would come home with these animal, these wounded animals and he would repair them and then free them again. But this hawk never really left him. Mm-hmm. Like, it would always come back. When he would come home, this hawk would come back and wow. would, like, visit yeah. him. And it wasn't in a cage. We didn't feed it or anything. This hawk would just come back when my dad was home. Wow. So, like, I made those connections and... Um, I don't know. A dream, connection, whatever it was, it helped. And yeah. she was like, okay. And so, like, we all have this narrative that I planted um, of, you know, my father being a hawk. Even to this day, like just yesterday, driving on the freeway, I, I looked up and I, I always see these tall, like, light posts, you know, mm-hmm. on the freeway. And I see hawks up there all the time. And I always spy, spy them. And every time I do, I think, Elias, hi. You he's, know. <laughs> he's, he's with you. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah. Which, at this point in time, nearing Dia de los Muertos, Day mm-hmm. of the Dead, mm-hmm. it um, it's a reminder for me that for as long as I still have him in my mind and in my heart and I still say his name, he is still alive and present. Yeah, you know, because that's that's the attitude you you know in Dia de los Muertos is, you know, you have you have your death where you're buried in the ground, but the true death is when nobody remembers you, when yeah. nobody says your name anymore. I, my father-in-law died two summers ago, and my son I think was three, and we were all in the room when he died, and. I don't remember now if it was exactly when the movie Coco came mm. out, if it was the year before or that, or last year. Mm. I forgot exactly when yeah, it was. Two years ago, maybe. But I feel like it was close enough in time to when my my son's grandfather died, and this was the first death he experienced beyond, like, a fly in our house, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I I found that 
being we light candles also on anniversaries of death. We call them yard site candles, and um, but I I I felt like having him see that movie and understand sort of the way you honor and remember, and it was this. It made I feel like that t- like just him pro- my son being able to process it all much mm-hmm. easier. The har- and and he you know was there when it happened was at the funeral and it was a very traditional Catholic funeral, but we did a burial and there's a few of my husband's half sisters that converted to Judaism because they married Orthodox men Mm -hmm. who they've since divorced from, but one of whom is still actually practicing. And so she had us do the tradition is that we, the family does the burial parts of the burial. So we scoop dirt. and and put it on the grave so we didn't have because it was a catholic service we didn't have shovels but she was like pulled me and my son aside and was like come on let's just get a little dirt in our hands and throw it in so my son sort of had that understanding and the we went to a funeral recently for a cousin that he'd only met once but he so we sort of understood that burial part Mm -hmm. but the challenge i've been having now is like around halloween and he wants to understand what are zombies and what are mummies (laughs) and so when we first explained (laughs) zombies then he said he he called his grandfather pup he said oh so is pup gonna come out of the ground now as a zombie and i was like oh no (laughs) i deal with this no, he's going to be on an alebrije flying <laughs> yeah, to yeah. you in, in your dreams. <laughs> yeah, so that was that's our challenge. So you, you talked about at the beginning of our conversation about how this, your father's death, wasn't what, you know, that there was family coming to the U.S. prior to that, but this was the moment that made your mom decide, okay, yes, yeah. now it's time for us. Yeah. So what was that like, leaving El Salvador and coming here well, as a kid. Um, out of all of her siblings, she is the only one, uh, and, and us, my sisters and I, we are the only ones who traveled by plane. Hmm. Um, and it was because, you know, here she was, uh, a young woman, really, um, with, she had me when she was 24. My mom was the same age, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Hmm. So she was, what, 31, barely in her yeah, early 30s. God. And, like, she had my sisters, and they were little. Could you imagine this woman? And she's gorgeous. Like, she's so gorgeous. Like, when I was in high school, the boys always wanted to come over to my house to be like, hi, Rosario. <laughs> you know? Um, and when you're that young, I mentioned, like, my mom, yeah. everybody, because she was also a single parent. Yeah. Everybody thought she was our older sister. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly how it was. She was gorgeous. And um, I can't imagine her uh, being that gorgeous and uh, traveling by herself and, and not having anybody harass her mm-hmm. at, at, or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, with three little girls, like that was very frightening for her to consider. So she did she did the eye batting, the eyelash batting at the embassy to like figure out how to get the visas and mm-hmm. get the passports and she got it. Um, it. It took a little while, but she got it and then she was able to uh, make plans for us to travel out here and, and then my great aunt uh, traveled with her to mm-hmm. help her with us. I mean, that was that was, in, you know, it was hard. You know, one of my aunties who traveled on her own um, while pregnant she uh, got caught by the Mexican immigration, and she ended up getting stuck in Mexico for a while, mm. pregnant. And fortunately, um, she made a friend out there that gave her a place to stay and to be. And then she was able to get back to El Salvador, give birth. And then when she traversed again, you, you know, mm. using the coyotes, uh-huh. the coyotes, yeah. um, she did that carrying a, a baby across you know and and we hear all these stories about people uh you know getting raped we hear all these stories about people uh getting lost and and dying of thirst we hear all of these things and i'm grateful that my family was able to get get through but like it was so tragic for them that they don't talk about it she that auntie when um all of the news was 
height, you know, with the high end of the news, you know, women crossing the border with their babies mm-hmm. and like images of that man, you know, with carrying his baby and dying in the river. You know, the river. God, Ugh. like she, they, my mom and my aunties, they sob. Like even I want to sob. Um, and and it's not that I'm sentimental or overly emotional, um, you know, over the news or this is me, but it's more like my sobs are for them and whatever pains and experiences that they've had because like they're still not even willing to talk about it or share yeah. it. They don't want, they don't want to say it. And hearing all of that basically just opens wounds for them. Like it's such mm-hmm. a post-traumatic, uh, stress experience for them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it was tough. And I, I just, I'm, I'm grateful my mom was able to, um, you know, travel with us by plane. I, I remember it too. I remember, um, my, my middle sister had this giant, giant bear that was bigger than her. She had to bring that thing along because the bear's name is Tito. At some point she tried to make him a girl. So we tried to change his name to Tita. Um, he's, he's been many genders, but he's back to being Tito and he traveled with us and that was her comfort zone. And, and, uh, she sat with me and my, my, uh, and we sat next to this man who was very kind. He he, he talked to us a little bit. Uh, and my mom sat in the other aisle with the baby, my, my little sister, uh, Ligia, and uh, my great auntie. Um, I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing this, like, little uh, skirt that was this brown um, and, and off-white beige checkered outfit and this little vest and a little shirt underneath it was like mm. a cute outfit I thought it was really cute and um, did you pick it out yourself yes of course yeah. fashion <laughs> <laughs> and I remember uh, were there moments on the trip where it was like we're going on an adventure and it's yes. going to be exciting and yes yeah but I did I didn't uh I felt sad because I had to say goodbye to my brother and, and did you and understand my did you understand you were really leaving for good, not vacation? No, I didn't. I mm. didn't until ye, um, months later. Months mm. later when my mom had to, maybe a year later. Mm. A year later when my mom made a choice to go back to El Salvador to um, take care of our, you know, if, ensure that we didn't lose our property or pensions in case mm-hmm. we went back and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, she made a choice to do that. My family was supporting her through all of this. And the, the, the plan was to leave us with, with family and it was just going to be a matter of months. Mm. Um, and she'd be returning, um, you know, soon. And I remember that was really hard. And a- around that time, um, you know, we, I remember also talking to my brother because my mom had been in contact with my grandmother and, like, they were making these plans. And um, I remember I talked to my brother, and I was just so sad. Like, I missed him because that was my 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 role dog, you know. <laughs> how, did, how did your mom decide to only bring the girls? Oh, well, he's not my he's not my my uh, mom's son. Oh, he's my half okay. brother. I, okay. mean, I should have said that. Okay. Um, he's he's my dad's son only. Okay. From a previous relationship, mm-hmm. so she didn't have. Uh, it wasn't her son. To it's bring. not her child yeah. to bring. Okay. Yeah. Um, but he was raised by my grandmother, my mm-hmm. dad's mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, I was really sad. I remember crying. I remember crying, and I had this auntie that who we were going to be left with and and she was like stop crying you know and i think um she was just trying to like protect us um but it made me have to suck up all my emotions and like like i had to not be sad you know and it felt something about that felt cruel and still kind of feels a little bit cruel like you know to to be told not to cry and then the Mm -hmm. same thing happened when my mom was getting ready to leave we were just crying and i really didn't want her to go and um God, I hate talking about it. This is why I don't talk about these things. It's hard. Because every time I do, it kind of makes me want to cry. Of course. And I do, I remember I was just bawling and I didn't want her to go. 
And um, my aunt, again, was like, stop it. Don't cry. Da, 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 this whole thing. And it was like, okay, suck it up. And, and yeah. like, I, I, I learned to just, you fucking suck it up, man. Um, but, yeah. yeah, like, you also just kind of learn not to talk about these things. Because, A, it hurts. And, B, like, you don't talk about being an immigrant. Like, we just grew up not talking about this stuff, like, even to this day. I think most of the people I know don't even know these things about me because mm-hmm. I just don't talk about it. Um, yeah. And here I am talking to you about it. I really appreciate it. I think as as parents, I imagine you experience this too, like to me watching everything happening on the border now <laughs> and having a child and I think about like what my ancestors did to leave Eastern Europe when they did and what would I do if we had to leave here? And I think about that. And how the hell do you do it with yeah. a kid? And yeah. yeah. Shit, sometimes I worry if I'm blacklisted somewhere. <laughs> if I'm blacklisted and if, you know, yeah. somehow I'm going to end up having to, like, flee in the middle of the, of, of the night and shit. <laughs> I have these, like... <laughs> uh, I have these moments of where... Some of it, I'm sure, is watching, you know, like, too much Handmaiden's Tale, right? <laughs> you know me, too. But there's, there's, um, my friends that are Jewish get it. My friends that are not don't always understand what I'm saying. But I, they're, knowing the evangelical people in our government and their reasons for supporting Israel are not out of, they don't care about Jews. Yeah. They care about keeping turmoil in the Middle East to eventually start the apocalypse and get the second coming of Jesus to happen. Mm-hmm. But from my understanding, the only reason way that would happen is if all the Jews go back to the homeland, right? Yeah. Quote, supposed homeland. Yeah. And so I have moments of fear where I think um, what records... I'm not a religious person. I, I'm I'm not. I'm an atheist, Hebrew school dropout. But I <laughs> feel very culturally Jewish, and I don't want to hide that. But at the same time, I think like, when would it get to the point where they round us up and sh- get us on a plane yeah. to make that start? And then what do we do? And I also, my sister and I have this used to have this joke as a kid because we look like our father's side which are which is catholic and french canadian and very aryan looking <laughs> and i remember like we always joked like we knew growing up that we had a lot of family who came to the u.s during the late 1800s before the nazis really rose to power but we also had family who perished in the holocaust and some who one person escaped but all their immediate family died and we have this cousin Louisette everybody talked about who was survived the Holocaust because nuns in France hid her in a convent and so my sister and I would always sort of joke like we would have survived because we're blonde and blue eyed and we could have passed and we'd look Aryan and my son looks exactly like that side of the family too but has my husband's Irish last name so we've joked about like, be safe. There are these moments where panic, where yeah. I part of me thinks this is like extreme conspiracy theory thing, and part of me thinks this is legitimate. This could actually happen, but I think about that, like that we're we could we pass if we had to, and but what records yeah. are on paper that really say what our true identity is? I have to say that um, I have felt that same level of threat internal threat that like this it is sort of like a conspiracy kind of thing like this this fear like I remember with the twin towers when they were hit um I I I was like oh my god I can't believe this is happening like this is bad yeah and then I took this psychology class and uh I hadn't really thought that that affected me that the twin towers affected me and the psychology professor asked a question. I can't even remember exactly. I think she said something like, talk about your feelings and, and talk about what where you were and what happened, you know, mm-hmm. what, what did you feel? And I guess that prompted me to think. And I started crying. 
I started crying in the middle of this class, like bawling, and I was like shaking. And mm-hmm. and I and then after that, I because you know, like you're supposed to bottle these feelings up. You don't talk about this shit. And I just felt so. I felt like I had exposed myself. I felt naked, and I dropped out of the class. It probably would have oh. been a good class for me. Yeah. But I dropped out because I said too much. Mm-hmm. You know, it was this mm-hmm. this feeling of like this was at UCLA as an undergrad, and I felt like. I said too much, like, oh, my God, why did that happen to me? I had no control over myself, and I talked about how that made me feel so scared and threatened And because suddenly there was this, like, anti-immigrant sentiment of, like, we were all terrorists. Yeah, like, I really, no, you know? I really remember distinctly feeling at that time that anybody who's not a white Christian heterosexual male is fucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the time, I was also doing research at Botanicas, mm-hmm. these spiritual centers in all of Los Angeles, and the buzz in those centers was also that. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I wasn't an undergrad; I was a fresh graduate student. This was my first year of grad student, I believe. Grad student, yeah. Life. And and uh, I, I remember uh, that this was the buzz at Botanicas. People were like, these Botanica centers were like the places where they felt okay you know, expressing themselves, like expressing their fears, but also a a place where they were really affirming that they were pro-American and American and like putting the flags up and like praying for America and all of these things. Um, And and it was just, uh, you know, just kind of intense to see all all of the the anxiety in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, Which... Seems even like nothing compared to the anxiety now. I know. At that. Especially, I re- there's a friend who wanted to participate in this, but at the same time said she hesitated because she, when Trump was contemplating reviewing green cards and naturalization papers to look for errors and to revoke citizenship from people, she was like, I don't want to put my family in jeopardy, so I can't do this and I totally understood that I mean I have yeah. I have my grandfather great grandfather's naturalization papers and um, yeah it's sort of thinking a lot about that like what are the yeah what are who's at risk I'm a naturalized citizen and yeah. uh, I became a naturalized citizen when Benny was six years old so not that long ago he's mm. 14 now mm-hmm. I was here teaching at Otis already um, yeah. And uh, part of what took me so long to do that is when I was younger and my mother could uh, do it for all of us, it was just expensive. It's like back then I think it was like 600 for each person. Yeah. Might have been more when I did it for myself. Probably so like, by then. Yeah. That's like half my rent <laughs> at that time. You know, um, it's expensive. And then the other thing is, uh, you 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 have to be ready and willing to give up uh, th- this national identity and allegiance to this other place, this, yeah. this homeland. Because there's not a lot of places they will allow for dual citizenship. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if they they do in El Salvador or not. It doesn't matter because I've made my life here. Mm-hmm. This is my home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and it's crazy to think that even though I do all of the right things, I can still be threatened, and yeah. my my stability and my safety here can still be threatened. And so with Trump's threats, I, I just kind of have gotten to the point of I am not going to live in that fear anymore, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's my Vive for Vendetta scene where she gets her head shaved and... You know, he's mm. <laughs> he, he seemingly tortures her so that she'll stop having the fear. If the if you know the worst has happened, yeah, or can happen, like you just let it go. I feel like I'm there now. Um, you know, like just keeps he just keeps threatening and doing these things that like creates a tinge of like the anxiety and like you know, and if not for yourself, mm-hmm. for people in your family, mm-hmm. like you know. Um, what do you think it means to be an American? Um, gosh. Well, I think um, I think uh, 
for me, to be an American is somebody uh, who, you know, values being here, values engaging with people, values participating in the economy and the politics of this nation, but not uh, if that means hating other people. Mm -hmm. I think... Uh, I think for the most part, most people would much rather align themselves with the ideas of American um, narratives that emphasize uh, diversity, uh, melting pot, even though there's problems with that too, you know, mm-hmm. with, these, with those ideas. Um, you know, I think most people prefer to align themselves with those narratives um, I think for me, to be an American is all about social justice, to do the work um, here in this country to help provide food access, to help, uh, you know, stand on on the side of creating a more just society for m- people around me, not just mm. folks in my family and folks in my community, but, you know, everyone around me. I think that's a big thing. For me, and maybe that's just my own personal definition of what yeah. it means. Like that's my that's how I am in American. Like I'm not a military person, but I do give back. You know, like I'm not a patriot, but this is my patriotism to give a shit and be on the ground and do the work. Uh-huh. That's fucking hard too. You know, like I don't bear any arms. You know, I'm I'm not gonna do that ever. I'm I'm a peaceful warrior, but. Fuck, I'm on the front lines of trying to, like, create access for people. My research is all about, like, how do we use this towards, uh, you know, creating better programs? You know, what else can I do? Yeah. Like, how, can, you know, volunteer work, all of that. That's that's my definition of American. Building community. Mm-hmm. Building community and having compassion and doing the work I mean it's it's not easy it's wow. a lot of because for me this also means sometimes I deal with people who have very narrow minded views and perspectives and sometimes it isn't worth it to engage with them at all because it's just too much work to deal with the hate they're carrying but other times it's like dealing with uh, you know people who might have negative perceptions or or uninformed perceptions like I have this this friend whose father was like you're the first South American I ever liked and I was like uh well I'm not South American <laughs> uh and uh you know that kind of sounds wrong but uh yeah thanks and he was a sweet person and and I felt like you know the interactions we had became educative you know educational for him <laughs> That's, you know, (laughs) it's not the first time I've heard someone say that. It's like, it's the worst. I think that's where that's, you know, the classic microaggression, right? They might feel like they're well-intentioned, but they don't understand how offensive what they're saying actually is. Yeah, exactly. And it's those things piled on top of each other that get too much. Yeah. And I'm sort of liking the age where we're at, where... You know, the subaltern speaks, people of color speak, you know, we're, we're standing up and like figuring out how to have these conversations that are not easy for white people to hear, you know? Yeah. You know, like my best friend called me yesterday and she's like, yeah, these, these women at work, there's like two divided camps and, you know, I'm friends with these Salvadoran women. They're really friendly and they're very sweet. (laughs) And she's like, but the other girls, the Chicanas, they're really mean. And I'm like okay, hold up, let's talk about this. And so, like, I had to give her a 101 on, here's some things you might not be understanding. And she was like, shit. She was like, I think you need to give me some readings. I think you need to help me get educated. And I was like, yes. I said, because you shouldn't you shouldn't feel this way. And, uh, you know, like, this is your workplace, and, and you're a teacher, and these are your workmates. And I bet anything, if you just kind of, like, did a little unlearning <laughs> and, and learning. <laughs> yeah. Things could be better between you and your cohorts at work. I am very, I feel like, and I say this from a place of like, I know I have a lot of white privilege because 
I get that Jews were not always considered white, and if you mm-hmm. ask a white supremacist, they're they're not happy for me to be considered white. But right. I get that in most instances, that's how I present myself. I, right. You know, people assume I think of me as white, and I write white on the check boxes. But um, I also think that you know, white people have made people of color way more than uncomfortable for our whole history of a country that it's okay for white people to be a little uncomfortable having these conversations. I said that to my friend last night, too. (laughs) I was like, okay, you're uncomfortable. It's okay. Welcome to my world. Yeah, like, you know what? (laughs) Some of it's got to come back. Like, it's it's, it's a little necessary. What are you, you've talked a little bit about some of the things that you maybe could be fearful of, but you're like, no, I'm not going to be fearful of this. What are some of the things that you're hopeful for? What are some of the, well, I am really appreciating the fact that as hard as it is, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and, uh, you know, the, the, yeah, Black Lives Matter movement Mm -hmm. has opened up the uh, possibility of having conversations about race and racism in this nation. And I, I, I clearly identify that it is the Black Lives Matter movement and the dialogue that was created through that movement that has influenced and impact people in multiple corners mm. of society to start figuring things out and opening up the conversations and to recognize that unless you are actively engaging in anti-racism, anti-racism yeah. work, if you're not doing the work of anti-racism, like if you don't know what I mean by that, you're not doing the work and you have to do the work, you know, join, join, join the gang, man, join the positivity uh, for the future gang. It's not fucking easy. Uh, but like that, that I think is what makes me hopeful. Like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. And it's hard, and there's still a lot for me to learn. And it means that even I, as a person of color, have to look at myself and my position of privilege or power in certain areas mm-hmm. and, and situations. Like, I have to look at that, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to be able to, like, turn the lens on myself. Like, in which situations am I in the position of power? You're and, in the intellectual you know. elite with your <laughs> exactly. PhD. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm a professor. I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I have that. I have to own that. I have to mm-hmm. recognize that. Um, you know, also, like, when I talk about my immigrant narrative, it is not the same as immigrants who cross the border. It is not the same as, uh, you know, a lot of the dreamers. Those mm-hmm. are different challenges and experiences. I have to see the privilege that I have had, regardless of all of the hardships, but I have to be able to see the privilege that I've had as being a middle-class Salvadoran uh, you know, child, you who know, came on a plane, with all, right on a plane with all the right paperwork. I have to mm-hmm. see that. I have to see that. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, things were not, um, easy for us here. And there was a lot of, you know, much of the privileges we had back home, we didn't have here at all, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but that doesn't take away other privileges and other situations that I've had. Yeah. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you. I'm glad we were able to do it. Me too. Thank you for sharing your story with me. Thank you for sharing And with yours. our listeners. Yeah. Thank you for doing this work. I really value and appreciate the stories that you've been collecting. Um, it's meaningful to me. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks.